if everything that can be automated will be automated, I fear for the people who have bet all of their time, energy, and attention on developing technical skills because those are going to be the most useless people in the future of work. Hello and welcome aboard. Get ready for a new journey here at the Virtual Frontier. Great you found a way back to the show. And if you just joined recently, hit the subscribe button right away so you never miss new episodes. Today, I welcome Hamza Khan to the show. Hamza is a best-selling author, a global keynote speaker, and lecturer at the Ryerson University in Toronto. I found Hamza a while ago on a TV interview about burnout and stress at work. In this special episode, I'm talking with Hamza about why burnout is a leadership problem, what are young talents looking for at the workplace, his outlook on the future of work, lifelong learning, and the importance of community. Seatbelts on while we take off. See you in just a moment on the other side. So, Hamza, welcome to the Virtual Frontier. Finally, we got there. Uh, Finally. We, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we just spoke in the, in the warm-up about uh, how, how long it has been that I have prepared this podcast. And meanwhile, you uh, have written another book. And today we have the chance to talk about um, leadership reinvented and the burnout gamble altogether. And I think those yeah. are two topics that are really um, yeah, crucial for our time. And um, But before we start off, Hamza, maybe um, tell our audience a little bit who, who's Hamza, what's what you're doing and sure. what's, what, is, what is your mission? Absolutely, absolutely. Really, really glad to join you. I believe this is episode 44 of Virtual Frontier. That's uh, right. A lot has happened since we first connected. A global pandemic, forest fires, another book. And actually, you are speaking to me the week after I got married. So this is my first interview as a married man. Uh, so much has happened. A little bit about myself. Uh, in Come addition on. to being a newly married man, I'm a speaker, I'm an author, I'm an educator. Uh, I wrote The Burnout Gamble in 2017. And in 2021, I published Leadership Reinvented, uh, a book about modern leadership and the future of work. So that's a little bit about myself. You are now catching me at the time of this recording. We're on a bit of a break. Uh, I have no speaking engagements. Classes have winded down. And, uh, you know, I'm really just glad to be here to chat with you and to chat with your audience. Boom. I very much appreciate that you take the time now between uh, the, the festival days. And so yeah. you, you were spoken to, uh, you just spoke about the, the pandemic and uh, all, all the things that have changed. Uh, probably you uh, uh, let us a little bit about what, what has changed for you, for you personally in your work. Um, you have... You're heavily uh, engaged as a speaker. What have changed maybe there? What, what have rolled back and come back maybe? Um, sure. So what, what, what has changed yeah, for your yeah. business? Well, let's take it back. So, so even for you, Daniel, and all of the listeners, when you, when you think back to what your life was like in March of 2012, <laughs> we said that the mic wasn't going to fall. And <laughs> no, sure enough, within, within five minutes of, of the recording, <laughs> it, uh, it collapsed. So I apologize for all the listeners who heard that thud of, of the mic against my chest over here. Um, okay, so you think back to March of 2020. That was a very scary time. My speaking business shriveled up to a grand total of zero clients. All of my clients freaked out and they, you know, rightfully so. And they said, we have to cancel all of your speaking engagements. I mean, all of the speaking engagements that I had booked up were canceled in rapid succession because 
in-person events were, were now being shuttered. Uh, clients were going into defense mode. They were hibernating. They were ducking and covering. And uh, I was very much doing the same thing with the agency that I was a part of at the time. We were in emergency meeting after emergency meeting talking about how we're going to outlast this novel coronavirus that nobody had any answers for. Nobody had any crystal ball that could predict beyond the one or two weeks that we were being told by the government that it would require for us to manage the spread of COVID-19. And here we are, I think, 22 months later. <laughs> you know, it's going to take three weeks to flatten the curve, and you know, nearly two weeks later, here we are. So, so that was very scary for me. Uh, the speaking business shriveled up, and um, what was even more scary for me is that uh, my father was deemed non-essential uh, and lost all of his income and was at home for the first time in his career for an extended period of time. And I felt uh, it was right for me to spend as much time with my parents during this time as possible mm. to try and help them to make meaning of what was happening, to try to prepare mentally and emotionally for the forthcoming changes. And on one such night where I was at home, I remember my dad was very fidgety and anxious during dinner because for the first time in his life, he was considering the possibility that he wouldn't be able to provide for his family because he didn't know when the job, when, when his store was going to open up again. And it was late one night. And, uh, you know, he woke up, I was sitting downstairs with him in, in his house, uh, my parents' house. I was sitting downstairs with him and, uh, he was asleep on the couch and he woke up in the middle of the night and uh, seemed a little bit disoriented. And he said, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to sleep. Good night. And, uh, he went to the kitchen and I could just see, you know, from where I was sitting, a little glimpse of him at the kitchen. And I thought he was getting a glass of water, but it turns out he was doing the dishes at like one or two in the morning. And I thought to myself, well, this is really odd. What's going on over here? And in, in, in hindsight, I think what was happening was he was just trying to control something. He was trying to do something that was familiar because so much of what was happening to him was complex. It was ambiguous. It was volatile. It was uncertain. But doing the dishes at one point in the night, I feel like in hindsight, it made sense to him. It was his way of asserting control. But uh, he was there for an inordinately, uh, uh, like a, like a irregularly long amount of time. He was there for maybe 15 minutes doing the dishes. And I'm like, well, what's going on over here? And then when I looked away, I heard uh, a glass fall on the floor. And then I heard what was the unmistakable thud of my father falling on the floor. And Daniel, I just, uh, out of body experience, I'm getting chills even thinking about it right now. Mm. I just jumped up out of my couch and I ran all the way to the bathroom and I saw him on the floor having a seizure. Never, Never happened before. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? And in that moment, I experienced what's known as the amygdala hijack, which is when the part of your brain that's responsible for the fight, flight, or freeze response takes over your prefrontal cortex. It's like you boot up an almost primal part of your uh, programming. It took over. And you know, in that moment, I just saw my entire life with my dad flash before my eyes. And then that gave way to what is the thing you're supposed to do when somebody's having a seizure? And I was able to pick up on, you know, times in the military where I learned first aid and, you know, when I was, when I was learning how to swim, how to, how to do CPR and all of these lessons that were buried within me just surfaced. And I was able to help my dad out of that seizure. I don't know how I did it, but I was able to get him out of that mm. and then call for help and then take him to the hospital. And that night was just one long ordeal an emotionally exhausting, physically and mentally exhausting ordeal of helping my father to recover from this. Anyways, to make a long story short, uh, that book then inspired me to look at the world very differently during the pandemic. And I realized that what had happened to me that night was what was happening to every single leader across the world simultaneously. 
every single leader was confronted with the reality that they were either ready for the change or they weren't. And if anybody was doing something effectively during that time, whether we're talking about, for, for example, Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand, and how she reacted to the pandemic, that to me was her true leadership philosophy and practices that were honed in the, in, in the years, months, weeks leading up to the pandemic. So there's this misconception that during a time of crisis, people rise to the occasion. But I, I, I learned in a very vivid way that that's not actually true. People actually sink to the level of their programming, training, preparation, character, and values, as I did when I experienced that amygdala hijack. So when I was able to look at the pandemic landscape, the leadership landscape during the pandemic with that lens, I realized that, wow, there's some really ineffective leaders over here who are capsizing companies and who can't do anything differently because they don't have the fundamentals. They don't have the programming. They haven't honed their character values uh, through the rigorous training necessary, befitting of making the right response during a time of crisis. So this inspired me to then write Leadership Reinvented, which is a guide for people who want to prepare themselves for the next crisis, whatever that is, whether that is you know, the AI revolution, whether that's climate change, uh, whether you, know, you could name any sort of disaster, any sort of adversity that would compel an organization to fundamentally disrupt itself, to change in reaction to external, external stressors, how can a leader prepare themselves for that leadership moment? So that's essentially what inspired me to write Leadership Reinvented. And that was, I would say, the biggest thing that happened to me as a thought, as a, as a thinker, um, and an author and a speaker, and even an, a now a burgeoning researcher during the pandemic. So all of that's to say, <laughs> a long-winded answer to what has changed for you during the pandemic, the yeah. short answer is everything. everything. Uh, a new way of looking at the world, a new way of thinking about leadership. And I tried my very best to capture all of those insights into my most recent book, Leadership Reinvented. Uh, and for those listeners who are wondering, my father's doing okay now. Uh, it was very scary. The doctor said that his seizure was caused by um, the, the, the stress, the anxiety, the uncertainty borne by the pandemic. And, and that's, that's so important uh, just to catch up on that, right? Uh, that we are, even in those times when, when things are getting really tricky and stressful, that we have built up, and, and you mentioned it just in the relationship with the leadership, right? That we have built up on, on this and prepared for this upfront so you can when there are times like this uh, you can um take 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 from from this uh, resilience or from the strengths that you have built up before or the skills that you have used before yeah and daniel this is really interesting i'm not sure if have we talked about this like i feel like you have you conduct yourself like somebody who has military experience like were you ever i don't, in the I, don't i don't know well, you have the disposition like you have like a like this air of discipline and calmness and 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 focus about you so I think that's a testament to maybe how you've been able to hone your own uh, um, operational readiness through other ways. You don't necessarily have to get it through the military, but one of the most interesting lessons that I learned uh, in the military was the importance of preparation in advance. Uh, I never understood when I joined. I was in the reserves. Uh, I did basic military qualification, soldier qualification, and a little bit afterwards as well before I, before I uh, had an had a honorable discharge. We would do drills all the time. And I never mm. understood why we're doing drills. I'm like, I already know this thing. Like, I already know how to disassemble my weapon, put it back together. I know, already know how to clean it. I already know how to prepare myself for this scenario and that scenario. 
And then when we were actually put to our first test, that's when everything came together. Because in the theater of combat, and I've never actually seen combat, I've only done simulations, when there's grenades going off, and you can hear the sound of rifles going off, when you can hear helicopters whirring overhead, it's, again, you sink to a level of training and preparation. And you're unable to actually think clearly in the moment. And so you actually have to default back to what you already know and hope that it becomes you know, part of your muscle memory in a sense. And so when things were just you know, quite literally in, in these training exercises blowing up, I was doing things at a subconscious level. My subconscious was guiding me. So that is what I hope to try to, you know, that, that, that dynamic is what I hope to try to communicate in Leadership Reinvented, that in order to prepare yourself for something like COVID-19, as a leader, you have to prepare for this well in advance and accept that the only constant about our world is constant change. So you have to constantly be updating what you think you're going to need as a leader in the future of work well in advance and train yourself. And I think the best way to do that is to fundamentally, is to rewire who you are fundamentally as a human being, to just try and be a decent human being, to try and be a good leader at your core so that when you are faced with crushing adversity in the future, that you don't have to doubt whether or not you're going to make the right decision. You will automatically make the right decision, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. I'm just, I'm just like curious about like, this is something or this is nothing new, let's say, um, those skills, but we haven't, we haven't nourished that or this wasn't, wasn't something inside the corporate culture over the last uh, decades, whatever time right. we would like to put there. Um, but whatever I, I, I go, the necessity, necessity of this is not nothing new. So why no. we're just uh, adapting to that right now? I have a couple of theories about this, and I'm exploring this. And I'm, and you know, at the time of, of speaking, we're, we're planning for me to do a fellowship uh, at uh, Trent University over here. And I'm really excited because this gives me the opportunity to just go and speak with faculty, speak with students, to drop in in classes, and really test out some of my biggest ideas. And one of the big ideas I have right now that I'm really trying to formalize and, and become very clear about is that the previous era of work was, was dominated by a way of thinking and being that stems from what's known as the dark triad of leadership. These are three sort of anti-human qualities that seem to have pervaded um, the old style of management. And they are narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And mm -hmm. they enabled many leaders to thrive. Uh, and there's many leaders today, too, who are masking their dark triad qualities and are experiencing success. And I'm not going to name any names because I hope to at some point go into their organizations and speak to their people and create some sort of an awakening, some sort of a, even a revolution, if you will. And, and we're seeing evidence of what I'm talking about over here with the trend. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, if you, wondering, Daniel, if you're seeing this in Mexico, the great resignation seems to have taken hold here in North America, where people are voluntarily leaving their jobs because they've had some sort of epiphany or awakening during the pandemic. And I think it all stems back to the same thing, this idea that people don't quit jobs, they quit bosses, they quit leaders. Mm. And so if you're seeing this, great resignation taking place across industries around the world. And even with government subsidies ending, the trend hasn't stopped and is in fact getting worse in some places in that people are choosing not to re-enter the workforce. Then I think that is, is worth looking into and investigating. That, that I think that speaks to, and, and I'm fascinated by this, on Reddit, they have a subreddit known as anti-work. You really have to check this thing out. These are sentiments of, have you seen this? No, no, no I, I will check on that. Well, ch check out anti-work and then check out uh, a phenomenon taking place in China known as involution, where people are just exiting the rat race. They're just leaving uh, 
the way corporations have they're cho- they're voluntarily choosing to to free themselves from the old structure and i think uh i i think that a, a big reason why this is happening is because the old structure uh creates imbalance i think it is designed to to prop up the the power and the the leisure of the people who control the means of production uh, i.e the leaders and the owners at the expense of the employees and the subordinates um which i i suppose in some sense is like a it's not it's not it's by no means a new idea it's a very marxist idea if you will um but i but i think it's evidence that something has fundamentally broken in the relationship between employee and employer uh and that's worth looking into and it's not a new idea like you said but it's now finally getting the attention that it deserves we're finally removing all of the distracting uh um all of the distractions that might have led us in the past to to misdiagnose what the what the root problem is i think we tried to solve this in many different ways we looked at this as perhaps a productivity problem as a workplace uh, environment problem as a culture problem but i think it is it is at its core a leadership problem and i think that the leadership apparatus that is currently governing the world and and and, and uh, the world of business as well needs a reboot it needs a hard reset it needs to become more more human centric i think we need to replace whatever vestiges of the dark triad exist that exist right now with uh, the light triad which is kantianism humanism and faith in humanity that seems to be what the world is clamoring for right now yeah yeah i i, I agree with you I, i i just don't see it on the other side for, on the corporate side i i just was pulling there some some stats or an article and a survey from the manpower group and an article on, on wise um, where they was talking about the, um, many companies in, in the U.S., this was based on the U.S., are like now um, lowering or um, abolishing their drug testing policy when a new enters are coming. So they're like stri- striving for talents on the one side and uh, doing that by uh, just like removing drug uh, testing policies to j- get the talent that you wouldn't get any anyhow else so what, what what's there it's, re- it's really upsetting and and i'm i'm uh, here's the thing man and and this is really tough for me right so i'm a public speaker and as, when i deliver keynotes and workshops they're very polished because i spend time writing them and rehearsing them and practicing them yeah. and in a podcast where we're having a free flowing conversation i realize that sometimes the way that i speak is very verbose you know there's a lot of conversational mitigation i'm not at my best and that's because these ideas are happening in real time but they're also being processed by me as hamza very emotionally and i get really upset about this so what you're saying right now is so frustrating to me because i know that those are people like my father who would take the job and put themselves in harm way for 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 not a lot of money and and quite literally die for a paycheck and that to me is um <clears throat> not not just the failure of business and government but that is the failure of of community and even humanity i think that we're making a fundamental error as a collective when we're not uh valuing the dignity and and the lives forget about dignity just the lively like the i'm getting tripped up over here i'm getting i'm getting i'm getting quite emotional because that's really upsetting let, to me let, that, let that, that's that's up. that's so upsetting to me that that they would actually relax their covid testing policies just to attract people into the workplace and expose them to that level of harm. And I I'm pretty sure that many of these leaders, many of the CEOs of these companies would say things at their annual meetings like, you know, we're a family over here and you know, mm-hmm. uh 
we believe in these lofty ambitions of community and togetherness. And, and, and again, you know, this refrain of we're a family here, but would you subject your own children to that? Would you tell your children don't get vaccinated or come work in this place over here for less than minimum wage, well below the standard of living and expose yourself to this harm? I don't think they would. So there's a, there, there's a hypocrisy almost that exists uh, and is really frustrating for me, but I'm, I'm also filled with a lot of hope the fact that we're having this conversation and I'm able to articulate these ideas as clearly as I possibly can, you know, right now, um, and that your, your listeners are tuning into this, I think that this is the beginning of something. This is the beginning of some sort of collective awakening. And maybe that's what this is. Maybe this isn't the great resignation. Maybe this is the great awakening where the population as a whole will realize that they can change the system uh, through this collective action. Yeah. Hamza, I don't want to play all the time the 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 the, the bad cop or or putting out. No, that, no, this uh, is great. Ne negative. Keep going in. I I I I see sometimes. Uh, or, or, or we have seen uh, in general a lot of changes in the workplaces. Uh, people have demonstrated that they can do their work wherever they want. A lot, lot of yeah, them. Man. Um, so there there was a responsibility that that wasn't wasn't present there as before. Um. But sometimes I have the feeling everyone wants to get to the old, back to the old normal, like, uh, especially in the corporate businesses, say, okay, uh, you can see their tendencies, um, Apple and Co. They want to get back all their, um, of course employees into the office. And, and, uh, or, or now we are like doing this uh, hybrid uh, policy where sure, I say, okay, sure. you can be two days in the, uh, in the office and, uh, or you, and then three days at home, but yeah, that yeah. Uh, shouldn't change. Right. So right. um, I, I feel sometimes this is not like the really profound change and things like lashing back to that, what we have known before. And then, well, well, Daniel, then you're also seeing that, you know, 3,000 and counting Apple employees have filed a petition or have written a letter, an open letter saying that uh, this is ridiculous. Yeah. What are you trying to do over here? You've clearly seen during the pandemic that we can be as productive as we were pre-pandemic, if not more productive. So why is, why is this insistence on returning to, I mean, I have to be very careful because there are, there are cases in which, you know, uh, a regulated in-person workplace structure makes sense. But for knowledge workers, for knowledge workers, especially if you've demonstrated that you can be creative, collaborative, and productive working from home, I think people need the choice. People need Uh, something that respects them. And this comes back to the TED Talk that I delivered in 2015, Stop Managing, Start Leading. Mm. And at the core of it was this idea that you manage things, not people. And so if you want to get your people back into the office, I think you as a leader need to ask yourself, why? Is it because you distrust them? If so, just be clear and just tell them straight up that I don't trust you to do work. And let them decide if they want to work for a leader that assumes that they're lazy, that they're unmotivated, that they need to be micromanaged. And you know what? I'll spoil, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the result. You're probably going to have a lot of people quit on you, but that's fine. And you should accept that because again, people don't quit jobs, they quit bosses. But if you want to take the approach of treating your people like responsible adults and giving them flexibility, giving them freedom, trusting that they can, they're perfectly capable of managing themselves and you therefore then manage their workflow and priorities, then I think you will probably see the opposite. If you create a healthy, a healthy workplace culture and give them the option to come into the office, and then design office interactions to be uh, intentional. You know, call people back in when you want to have a whiteboarding session, when you want to have a team building exercise, when you want people to have the option to work from the office when they don't want to work from home and create, a con create an environment that is conducive to that. 
So all of these things are possible. But, uh, you know, looking at your background over here, I see two books that jump out at me. It is going to be a messy process <laughs> and it is going to require leaders to be more human. Mm -hmm. I think you've got that. Like very subconsciously, they've been informing the way I've been thinking about the answers to your question. So there are companies out there that got this right, in my opinion. You know, Microsoft is one of them. Salesforce is another one. Uh, RBC is another one. All three of these are my clients, by the way, for, for, for my speaking. And they all came out very early in the pandemic and said, we realize that the world of work has changed. The future of work is demanding more uh, flexibility, more freedom, more collaboration, et cetera, et cetera. And they just have indefinitely uh, moved away from the office structure. And I think it's fantastic. These companies are thriving. But where you've seen the opposite, these are the companies that are going bankrupt, that are failing, their leaders are being publicly chastised. For example, did you see this uh, uh, the story that's been making headlines recently with Better.com CEO? The Better.com CEO who fired all 400 employees via Zoom? No, I, I haven't said What a disaster. This. He fired yes. 400 of his employees via Zoom. He, is, he accused them of time theft. It was the most cold, impersonal, uh, just, you know, I'm going to go out and say it right now. It just seemed really evil. Like it seemed like this was a person who at his core, and I, I hope he's getting the help that he needs to recognize the error of his ways and, and adjust to the new realities of work. And I think that, you know, he can redeem himself if he substitutes his dark triad traits with the light triad traits, but it's going to take some time and it's going to require some real, you know, human work. He was asked by his board of directors to step down, step away. Um, because he was causing irreparable harm to the company. I mean, it was, it was sending shockwaves throughout the company. This is how your CEO thinks about you. He, you know, uh, he, he runs his company the way a prison warden would run their prisoners. He needs to see everybody. Everybody needs to be visible. Everybody needs to clock in and clock out at the same time. You know, your work needs to be time-tracked. You know, he, he's, he's the sort of person and I'm not going to name who the other famous person is who I think is also thinking along the same wavelength. If you gave him the choice to replace all the humans in their office with machines, he would absolutely do it. Probably would go for that, yeah. There's another company out there, a really large company, where I think the humans in that company are just placeholders for the machines. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to name that because I hope to one day be invited to speak at that company. And when I do, I'm going to go in there and use that as an opportunity to create or at least plant the seed of... Um, some sort of positive revolution over there. So I think this is a time where leaders have to get real about what kind of company they run, what kind of leaders they are, and if their people are just placeholders for the machines. If so, that's your prerogative. You're more than welcome to run your company that way. But I promise you, if you're that sort of leader, you have a very short window of opportunity within which to have success. Because Daniel, you and I, and all of the listeners of the Virtual Frontier podcast are, are smarter. <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we're cued in we're cued into the future of work and how it's actually going to play out. And I think it's going to be very pro-human, very human-centric, and it's going to require um, leaders to get on board or else, uh, you know, they're going to, they're, like, like, like every other organization in existence, with perhaps the exception of General Electric, they're going to tumble into the chasm of time one way or another, and they're going to have to renew themselves or uh, fade into obscurity. <clears throat> Speaking about the future of, of work and, and, and leadership, um, I, I would like to drop the, the, the keywords uh, side and, and what you define uh, probably on a, on a good leadership and what, what it contains. Yeah, so, so if we're talking about leadership, you know, uh, in general, leadership is a system of action. 
designed to motivate people to, to move from one point to another, right? But what is good leadership? Good leadership, I believe, future-proof leadership. Um, I wrote about it in, in Leadership Readmit. I think uh, uh, it, it, uh, it requires four values to be operationalized and maximized simultaneously. The value of servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy. I think that those four values will allow you to unlock the full potential of your human workforce and allow you to anticipate change, prepare for change, and react appropriately in the face of change so that you disrupt yourself before disruption is required. You change before you have to. And I think that leaders who are not following this blueprint, who are not practicing or embodying these bright SIDE side values, they're playing a very dangerous game where the world changes around them and then they react to how the world needs them to change. And I think that with every one of those sort of last minute, you know, nth hour changes, it uh, erodes trust with their employees. It erodes customer shareholder value. And I think it eventually puts them in a reactive work workflow where, you know, you can't compete with these forces. The, the forces of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. The force of chaos itself is primordial. It existed before time itself. So to think that any one leader, any one organization can somehow create some, you know, uh, uh, mythical organization that is going to resist this ancient force is, is foolish. It's arrogant. You have to learn how to dance with chaos, how to see where it's going to move and position yourself accordingly. And I think that the way that we do that is to lean into the thing that has allowed human beings to evolve the way that we have over the last at least 10,000 years. Hmm. Our ability to adapt to and withstand stress is the thing that um, you know, has, has allowed me and you to have this conversation today. Uh, and I think that to, to, to think that there's something else other than our in, innate humanity that will allow us to, to adapt to and withstand the stresses of tomorrow, uh, if, there's, if there's anything beyond that, I think that that's, that's, that's foolhardy in my opinion. Like, yes, you know, we, should, we should use technology. We should embrace the forthcoming technological changes. We should, we should step into this virtual frontier with eyes wide open, but realize that we have to work in tandem with uh, machines and allow them to do what they do and in turn lean further into the things that we do. You know, Deloitte estimates that by the year 2030, 70% of the workforce as we know it will be affected by automation, machine learning, robotics in one way or another. Everything that can be reduced into an algorithm will be reduced into an algorithm. But the things that can't be simply reduced to binary code ones and zeros are things like servitude, innovation, diversity, empathy, attunement, resilience, creativity, the soft skills, the human skills that unfortunately have been stamped out of the traditional education system. And the emphasis has been put on us learning technical skills, which, you know, even if you're a doctor listening to this, you, you are on the chopping block as a doctor. If your job can be reduced down to simple, repeatable steps, at the end, a machine is going to be able to do it better than you. A machine is going to do it cheaper than you. It's going to do it uh, more efficiently than you. And it's, it's never going to get tired. So my advice for everybody listening to this is lean into the things that can't be simply reduced down to binary code. And those are the soft skills. Those are the human skills. Um, I, don't, I don't think that, uh, and, and maybe, you know, maybe I could be wrong over here, but I think the possibility is very low that uh, a machine will be able to recreate conditions necessary to, to mimic the 
and this is going to be, uh, this is, I'm going to go really out there with this one, the ancestral wisdom that is hard-coded in our DNA. Yeah, and, and even even there's a there's a huge progress upcoming in the next couple of years and decades. Um, I, I think we we need to implement those um, values that you have just mentioned um, right now um, in order that this system in the future will progress in the right direction, right? And we are not getting off 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 rail. So let's just like take out servitude and and uh, kindness and empathy of all all this what what is what we are confronting maybe in the next couple of years if we don't apply this um so i, I don't want to see the world in in a couple of years um, yeah if we don't apply this all, i mean there's so, all this advancements in, in technology yeah, yeah. Uh, we can point to so many science fiction scenarios that are you know maybe at the time when when they were introduced might have seemed very far-fetched but are now in my opinion very plausible you know terminator for instance <laughs> where the machine realizes in its purview that human beings are their own are the threat to its survival. So they, they become sentient and take over the military apparatus. You have Blade Runner in which you have cyborgs that are you know, embedded within, within humanity and indistinguishable from humans that are finding ways to create their own breakaway civilizations. You have The Matrix, which I think you know, is a, a, a series that I just watched recently, very similar to The Terminator, but instead of eradicating humans, they just place them in a state that is, uh, that is disproportionately symbiotic. So right now we think that, uh, you know, machines need us, but in the future, it might be the other way around. The machines might just convert us into their batteries. The way that we plug, you know, our devices into things right now, it's not, it's not I mean, it's not impossible. Look, there's some listeners right now who are scratching their head being like, Hamza, you, did you smoke, did you smoke before this, this podcast? Uh, no, I didn't. I am a little, a little tired from having just come back from my honeymoon and being, you know, uh, have, having enjoyed the last two weeks of my wedding, but. Think about it right now. How much time does the average teenager spend on the internet and social media? More time than they are awake. More time than they are conscious. More time than they are existing in the quote-unquote real world. They're spent tethered to their phones between 12 to 17 hours a day. So mm. you tell me who's in control. Is it us or is it uh, the internet? Is it the machines? Is it the te technology? And so we're, we're playing a very dangerous game if we're not reclaiming the aspects of our humanity that will allow us to benefit from when this inevitable tide of technological disruption uh, recedes. And when it does, hopefully, what will be left are jobs that are very human. If everything that can be automated will be automated, I fear for the people who have bet all of their time, energy, and attention on developing technical skills, because those are going to be the most useless people in the future of work. Yep. You're going to have these people who are just, uh, you know, shittier versions of robots. That's an interesting perspective. Uh, no, Just thinking it's, out loud, it's man. True. Yeah, it's true. You, you were speaking right now uh, all, uh, um, also about young people, and, and I would like to ask you that uh, um, from, from your personal and professional background, um, what, what, have, what you're seeing with young people, how, what, what they're looking in the future, like as they are like entering right now the, the, the workforce, all the, the Gen Z, and um, so what, what they are looking for and what they, they perceive might differently and or, or how, they, how they see the, the economy right now, um, what, is, what is your take on that? That's a great question. I have, a, I have a unique insight into this through my work with Student Life Network, which was Canada's largest um, student hub, reached over 2.7 million students. And then also, I'm a post-secondary educator. So uh, I have this, this sample group of like 120 students who are at, uh, you know, at the cutting edge, uh, who, who are like, you know, at the top of their class, the cream of the crop, if you will, when it comes to future of work, friendly jobs, 
creative jobs. You know, these are professional communicators in the making and whatnot. And the early signs that I'm seeing just from those two sample sizes alone are not very encouraging. I must say, this is a group who, um, you know, every generation thinks that the generation before them has ruined the world and they have to fix it, right? I, I thought that about Gen X and I'm sure Gen X thought that about boomers and vice versa. And, and you know, the, you can just follow that chain up. But I think we have very clear evidence, undeniable evidence that uh, previous generations, my generation included Gen Y and perhaps you as well, Daniel, we have left the world in a pretty abysmal state. Man. Mm. Um, just looking at the environment alone. Like that, uh, I'm embarrassed. I, I, I think I'm going to have a really tough time explaining to my children why the world is the way that it is when they inherit it. And I think about this uh, Aboriginal quote all the time that we don't inherit the world. Sorry, our, chil- our, chil- uh, our children don't inherit the world from us. We borrow it from them. So when you, when you adopt that mindset, if we're borrowing the world from our children, you have a set of twins that are seven years old. Everything that I do right now is taking away or bettering their world. It's either destroying it or bettering it. So my decision, for instance, to you know, use a plastic bag right now, it's convenient for me, but it's going to clog up the oceans for them. So it works in my timeline, but it's actually going to make their world a worse off place. So you know, this next generation, Gen Z, and, and the, the generation that's going to be your children's generation, which I think we're just doing a reset now, Generation Alpha. Uh, they're upset, they're frustrated, they're resentful. Um, they're looking at us like people who have uh, um, dropped the ball essentially at all levels, at the level of climate, at the level of technology, of governance, of morality. I think that they are eager to get to a place of privilege and permission space where they can start to change the world the way that uh, they know it can be. And this is the generation that has been connected via high-speed internet for as long as they've been born, uh, from the day that they were born, that they were exposed to different viewpoints via social media. They're much more tuned in to the zeitgeist around the world. They have much more empathy. They're much more focused on diversity, equality, equity, inclusion. They're much more focused on, on issues of climate change. Uh, and they're just waiting. They're just waiting to get into a position where they can make decisions without our input. Uh, and I sense that very strongly from them. At the same time, however, this pandemic has rocked them. Uh, it has caused, uh, it has already exacerbated what we were starting to see in terms of mental health challenges. Um, you're starting to see people, uh, you know, exit the system, as I, as I alluded to earlier with the involution trend in China, the anti-work movement that we're seeing here, at least on Reddit presenting itself in North America. Something is changing fundamentally about society. And I don't know if it's going in the direction that uh, we think it's going. I think that the possibility exists for there to be some sort of great overthrow of our established systems and institutions. Um, and it's going to be very uncomfortable. But I think that perhaps this is the necessary change uh, that we've been asking for for a long time with increasing volume and frequency. Hamza, there are so many things we, we could not right now dive into just know, in, the, in, the, in the comment you, you, you made. Um, but we don't have that, uh, that much time. Um, I catched up with, uh, with a phrase of, uh, of yours, um, and, and I really agree with that, but let's, let's elaborate a little bit more on that. Um, so when you wrote your book, um, the burnout gamble, um, you catch the issue of burning out uh, more from an individual perspective. And, but you now came to the conclusion that this whole burnout topic is also a huge leadership problem. 
And yes. um, I, I would like to ask you, as this is also something that is really present at the moment, there are a lot of people that are burned out uh, shortly before burned out uh, and all the different shades, what, what, what they're coming before. Um, how, how could we help uh, um, from the corporate side, uh, uh, the individual that is this operating inside the organization to become more resilient, um, catch up um, with the, the catch up with this um, notion when something is going wrong uh, into the direction of burnout or, or, or stressful events, um, how, how to detect them probably and um, maybe overcome those, those issues in, in, inside the company because there's a lot of, lot of time that is spent inside the corporate environment, but I think we don't take it as, as seriously as uh, uh, we should. Um, I, I think you mentioned just before with, with the, in the context with your father, um, about this, all this first eight uh, knowledge that you have uh, already learned a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, you have it some subconsciously. It's a deep, uh, some deep somewhere there, yeah. But with the with the mental stuff, we don't. Right. Wow, uh, Daniel, man, I, uh, I I I regret scheduling a meeting right after this because I I could do another two hours just on this topic alone. No. You are asking the question that every leader in the world should ask right now which is uh, essentially, what is the systems level fix for occupational burnout? Burnout is a symptom, right? Like, let's be clear. Burnout is to stress what a runny nose is to a cold. It's evidence that there's something wrong in the substructure. And over the last 10 years, I'm still very early in my graduate research right now, but over the last 10 years, there has been a very clear set of key indicators that have been trending in the direction that would, that would uh, make it clear to anybody looking at the data that people know what stress and burnout are. They have an increasing curiosity about what they are, and there's no shortage of solutions at the individual level to address levels of growing stress and burnout, right? So there's no shortage of books, podcasts, apps, you know, recipes, uh, search terms. It's, I mean, I could just, uh, the research is, is uh, the, the data set is just too vast right now. Yeah. Um, exponential growth in, in the pharmaceutical sector, exponential growth in the health and wellness sector over the last decade. And yeah. you would think that with the rise in all the curiosity and the solutions that global levels of stress and burnout would decrease, but that has not happened. Global levels of stress and burnout have only increased. And it's gotten so bad that the United Nations estimates that 2.8 million people die every single year because of workplace-related workplace stress. And if you, if you extrapolate those numbers over two years, that's twice the amount of deaths and caused by COVID. But you don't hear a peep about it. Mm -hmm. You don't hear about it because the system doesn't want you to know about it. The system is, uh, is interested in you continuing to work and die for a paycheck. And I think that is the problem that is at the heart of what it is that we're talking about today, which is we can't solve a systems level problem at the individual level. We have been taught that burnout happens and it's localized to you as an individual and that you have the ability to fix it. But Dr. Christina Maslach, who introduced one of the, one of the, the, the core burnout inventories, the Maslach burnout inventory, she had the best quote. She said that no matter how beautiful the plant is, no matter how beautiful the flower is, if you put it in lousy soil, you put it in the dark, you don't give it enough sunshine, you don't water it, it's not going to thrive. So we have to, we have to solve this problem at the, at the level of systems. And there's so many upstream predictors of burnout, like a toxic workplace, a lack of fairness, you know, a lack of appreciation, lack of value, so on and so forth. If these are addressed at the 
at the upstream, at the leadership level, then downstream, it will prevent burnout from happening. So if I had a magic wand, I mean, this would be, this would be fixed overnight. It would just be like, hey, let's get rid of all of the anti-human dark triad leaders and replace them with pro-human uh, leaders who lead from the inside out, true servant leaders. And I think that you know, this problem would be resolved within one decade. But that's not going to happen. So the starting point, I think, has to be bi-directional compassion. And, and compassion extends beyond empathy. Empathy is about you know, understanding another person's feelings or point of view. Compassion is making their suffering your own. So I think that if leaders start to have compassion for their employees, Microsoft actually, real quick diversion over here, Microsoft put out a report, um, I think it was called like the work life, state of work life. I can't remember the name of it. I'll share with you afterwards. But they showed that uh, uh, leaders and subordinates are having two very different experiences during the pandemic. Leaders are thriving. They're like, wow, I can work remotely. I can work from home. You know, uh, you know I'm, I'm being paid well. You know, I don't have to worry about my job security, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the opposite is true for, for subordinates who are burned out, who are exposed to harm, who are living well below the poverty line in some cases. So those two experiences, if both sides could see each other's perspective and then bi-directional compassion could be extended, that means leaders truly empathizing with and understanding what suffering their employees are going through and making it their sole job to try to ease that suffering and help them. And then on the other side, if the employees and the subordinates could look to the leaders and understand that those of us with good intentions are having a tough time and are also experiencing burnout and are also experiencing the languishing and all the other types of stress and adversity that they're going through just in different contexts, then I think we can come together as a collective to solve this problem at the level of systems. Until then, we're going to be isolated, alone, kept in the dark, and under the illusion that we can solve this problem by just meditating more and doing yoga and, and, and you know, adding more green to our diet and all the other bullshit that we've been told is going to help us to beat burnout. But no matter how productive and how well you are at the individual level, if you are working for a boss that is fundamentally anti-human and antagonistic, avoidant and aggressive, it's not a matter of if you're going to burn out, it's a question of when you're going to burn out. Does that make sense, Daniel? Sorry, that was a bit of a rant over there, but I get really fired up about this stuff, as you can tell. I want to put a little bit more fire, but just a quick one. Let's go, man. <laughs> um, there, there, um, there's also like, in, for, just for the hardcore uh, managers that I really don't get it. So what is the economic cost on like burnt, burnout uh, people and burnt out uh, people inside my team? Um, so just tackle it from, from the economic yeah, let, let's get down, let's get down to brass tacks. If you don't think that burnout is costing you, um, let me give you some stats that you should look at. And, and these, you can, you can tie them directly to burnout. Look at, look at, uh, uh, sick days taken, look at levels of, of absenteeism, look at levels of turnover, look at the time, energy, and, and hard dollars required to train your employees. Look at the cost of rehiring. Look at the opportunity cost that you're forfeiting when an employee quits and you have to restaff it. Look at the look at the price of prog uh, look at the price of pro projects that are being stalled because of turnover. There is evidence that burnout is affecting your organization in ways that you can't even comprehend right now. So leaders, just get real about this. When your people are not doing their best work, uh, it's affecting you in in ways that uh, you know. If you don't take them seriously now, you will be forced to take them seriously when your company capsizes because mm. that is going to happen. Um, if you're not if you're not leading a team that is self-actualized, that can anticipate change, that is preparing for change and can react appropriately when change is required, 
then collectively you are going to fail when the time comes. And every organization is subject to the same curve, right? Following introduction, growth, and maturity, you either have to renew or decline. Those are the only two options that you have. Reinvent yourself or fall into the chasm of time. And if you as a leader have built burnout into your business model, uh, if you're oppressing your employees, if you're making them die for a paycheck, then uh, you know, your organization will follow that same pattern over time. You know, organizations are essentially macro versions of, you know, the, how, how do I say this in a way that makes sense? You know, we, we sometimes think about organizations as, uh, you know, their own entities that, you know, they're, they're living, breathing things, but they're just the sum total of all of the people who power them. And if your people are not doing well, then uh, your organization is not doing well too. It's a, it's a sickness that spreads throughout the organization. It reverberates throughout the whole, just like, just like the planet Earth right now. We think that we can vaccinate one country and we can isolate this population over here. And if they're defeating COVID well, if they're handling COVID well in New Zealand, then you know, it, New Zealand's going to be fine for the rest of time. That's not true. Like we've learned through, through this pandemic, the world is interconnected. It's very delicate and interdependent. Just look at how the supply chain, one issue, one disruption in the supply chain, that boat getting stuck in the canal has affected Disrupted every country, yeah. every country in the world. Yeah. And uh, some are saying that the, we're going to we're going to feel the effects of that one incident until the year 2026. So my advice to the hardcore leaders over here who think that it's okay to burn people out, well, um, I'm going to I'm going to say this as delicately as I can. Um, I hope I hope that you change your opinion about that uh, soon because. Not only are you going to, or not only are you going to capsize the company, but uh, you will likely have blood on your hands because people people don't just burn out and they get tired and they go home and uh, you know they sit on the couch and then they come back to work after they've recovered. Like people get injured, people die. Um, you know, two point eight. Just don't don't lose sight of that number. Two point eight million people every single year die because of workplace re- related stress. You know, every, every one minute, 70 people around the world die from workplace-related stress. That's insane. Like, how long have we been recording this podcast? 49 minutes now so far? 49 times 70. Do the math. That's how many people died because of workplace-related stress. Decisions or indecisions at the leadership level are resulting in this. So I'll say that. Strong thing. Heavy stuff, man. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm, no, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's completely, it's, it's hard. It's hard. That's, that's it's what hard, we're talking man. about. Just to close it up uh, with a positive sure, context. Um, I, I would like to, to hear you about um, the attitude of uh, or, or, or thought, attitude to lifelong learning. I know you are a big fan of reading. How can organizations and the individual be prepared for the future? And um, that would be my last question for, for today with this, this mind of, of continuously learning from, from the world and what is happening around me. And I, I will keep this one very succinct. And, and again, uh, Daniel, I hope to have you on my podcast when I relaunch it very soon. And I hope that we get to do an episode two where I promise that I will be much more clear, much more concise, much more focused. Again, I said I'm coming off a week of wedding festivities and a honeymoon that I just got back from last night. So I have a little bit of brain fog right now and I'm not as clear as I want to be, but I know that in part two, we'll be able to do it all over again and get something much more refined. But I will end by saying this. One of my favorite quotes about the future of work is by a futurist named Alvin Toffler, who said that the illiterate 
of the 21st century won't be those who can't read and write. It'll be those who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. And I think that if you want to invest in any set of skills to navigate the future of work, let it be that, the ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn. And if you don't have those skills, then unfortunately, you are going to fall victim to what's known as active inertia, which is the tendency to repeat existing patterns of thought and behavior, even in, even in uh, the face of, of overwhelming evidence that the world is changing around you. You don't want to be caught. You know, I love him to death, but you don't want to be caught in the situation like my father was when his business was shuttered at the start of the pandemic, not knowing what to do, not having the mental dexterity to adjust, to pivot accordingly when the time came. So my advice will be invest in your ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn so that you can change before you have to. Hamza, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I really appreciate all these insights. And even if it was uh, from, from your side, not, uh, not so structured, whatever, I, I love that conversation and uh, I hope we can really do a second round. Uh, in a, I would a love that, man. Let's Nothing would make me happier. And uh, you know, my schedule is wide open, so we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen, buddy. Thank you so sure. much. For, for the privilege of, of chatting with you. I'm really glad that you know we were able to reconnect after all this time. And, and thank you to all of the listeners who made it this far into the podcast. Uh, you know, I, I hope that you were able to take away even one or two things from this conversation that will uh, orient you in a better direction. Uh, and this isn't goodbye. It's see you later. I hope that uh, you, know, you stay in touch with me. You follow me wherever you'd like. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I'm everywhere except TikTok right now. So <laughs> <laughs> let's see each other next year on TikTok. We'll see. <laughs> There we go, man. We'll do, we'll do, uh, inevitably they'll, they'll launch TikTok live if they don't already have that. Yeah. All right, Hamza. man. Take care. Thank you, you so too, much, man. Friend. This was an absolute pleasure. For me too. Take care, my friend. Back we are from an exciting trip into Hamza's world. Now you have some insights on how to burn bright, not out, and what reinvented leadership means. To really dive into these topics, I recommend you to get a copy of Hamza's books, which have been linked in the show notes. We hope you found this session helpful and you have now some new tools and insights on how to create better workplaces for the future. What have you missed in this episode? How can we do better? Let us know in the comments and reviews. And as always, before you leave, hit the subscribe button, give a thumb up and share the session around with your friends and colleagues. Your action helps us to grow this show and keep you informed and updated on trending topics about the future of work. On behalf of the team here at the Virtual Frontier, I want to thank you for listening. So until the next episode, keep exploring new frontiers.